We called it Big Twin Lake, but Nuevo County has a different name for it. Well, Marvin Dave's mom and dad owned the piece just in front of the lake. If you was to go down 40th Street, maybe a mile from the North Star Cafe, which I have no idea what it's called nowadays, their property would have been on the right, and then Basswood would have been in between um, M37 and their property. And if you went down Basswood and took the first two tracks to the left, that goes to Twin Lake. If you went down past the curve, you go over the railroad tracks, then there's a log cabin on the left you can see in the early spring and fall. Mm -hmm. And that was the cabin where Marv lived at, to the lake. So for the listener, the Marv we're talking about is Marvin... Yeah, Marvin Gabriel. Okay, and he right now sits on death row. So Marv is totally crazy. He was crazy back in the day. Marv smoked a lot of crack. Well, back then, Free Basin, it was a little bit different than crack. I had heard about Marv. Somebody called me in Florida and told me about it. And it was actually on our local news down there. So I turned the camp on and uh, and seen Marv on there. And then we moved back a few years after that. And I was fishing in that lake because that lake's a good lake to fish, you know. And I was with my daughter, and I actually snagged his body. What? Be up from the bottom with uh, with a uh, spoon. <clears throat> I had a warrant for my arrest for a few things. So I couldn't really turn it in, but it got turned in. And um, So you literally found a body, but you didn't want to be the one to turn it in, so someone else did it? Yep. Ugh, oh, that's awful. And you knew when you found that body that, that Marvin had done it? Yeah, I knew who it was when I pulled up the sweater. And how, how when did, when was it that he did this? How, how, like, how long had the person been in the lake? That was... 1992 or three, or maybe a little sooner, maybe a little later. When did you get pregnant? April 91. So it was around 91, 92 when he was put in the lake. And then when I was there, it was around 2001 or two. It was the 01 or 02. So that was around the time when that, when I, when that happened, I believe. Now, I've had some pretty traumatic things happen in the last couple of decades, so my memory could actually be off on the years. He was a little bit older and a little frail, so it was a it was a weak guy. Actually, all of them I could think of that Mark killed were kind of weak. After we spoke, I spent some time wrapping my head around what I had just heard. Could he really have found Wayne Davis's body first? His reason for not reporting it made sense, but I couldn't figure out how the body was found after he'd spotted it. He gave me a description of exactly where it was found. Twinwood Lake, back east corner close to a pile of logs set in place for fishing. But how did you arrange for his body to be found by someone else after you left? I asked him. He private messaged me back. I didn't. Fate stepped in. That lake is used a lot. I just dislodged the body. Someone else called it in the next day. That lake has trout, bass, bluegill, speckled bass, bullhead. It's fished a lot. 
Wayne Davis had been in that lake for five years, so him dislodging the body made sense, but then I was thinking, wait a minute. Davis went missing in February. This is Michigan. That lake would have been frozen in February. How would Marvin Gabrion have even gotten Wayne into a frozen lake in the first place? So I messaged my source back and he replied, he was near the mouth of a flowing stream that doesn't freeze over in winter. Now for the listener, I want you to know that Twinwood Lake is a different lake than Oxford Lake, the one where Rachel Timmerman was found. They're about 25 or so miles apart. Both lakes had campgrounds and boat launches at the time, which made them convenient for someone with a propensity for getting rid of his victims in bodies of water where he knew they would be harder to find. But the thing of particular interest about Twinwood Lake is that Marvin Gabrion had lived in a cabin on that lake, so it was familiar terrain for him. Wayne's body was found within walking distance from that cabin in winter when all you had to do was walk across the lake on foot. Or maybe you had an ice-fishing shanty out there with a large enough hole to fit a pair of shoulders through. Did you take a look at the pictures I sent you? Yeah, I know exactly where it was. Okay, where was it in that picture of the Twinwood Lake? It's right there where the creek comes in. So on the bottom, uh, was it correct, the southeast portion near the bottom, is that area where you were fishing? Yeah, as you see a drop-off point. There used yeah. to be a, a snag of trees that the DNR put there for fish, and it was in that snag. So the area that I close-uped on was the correct area? Yeah, it was a little bit off the picture, but yeah, it was in the in the same area. Now, how do you access that area? Is it dry? How close can you drive before you have to get out and walk it? You can get up to the lake on the uh, north side there, where that you see the rail, the road. You see the main road or the main dirt road, and then you come off of that to a two track, and you take that two track back about a quarter mile. Then there's like a little campground type thing. And the boat launch, and that's where that's where we were parked. You were parked like uh, how far from where you were was the campground part? I thought the campground was up north, on the north section. Oh, there's little areas there people party and park where there used to be. Okay. I don't know if there still is. DNR might have cracked down on all that stuff. All right. Yeah, I wanted to get an idea just because I think I am going to take a trip, take someone with me, and go down and uh, just take a look at it. Yeah, yeah if, you get, if you want to go to that area, you're going to need a rowboat. All right, good. I'm glad you told me. So you can't get to the area where you were without a boat? You can when it's frozen. That <laughs> all made sense to me then. So you've been there when it's iced over, and did you ice fish on that lake? Um, Once, maybe a long time ago, but we've been back there. Locals, you know, we go everywhere when we're teenagers. Yeah. I always investigate stuff. At least we did back in the 80s and 70s. And... Yeah. Do you know if Marvin was prone to ice fishing on that lake, Twinwood? I've never seen Marvin fish, but that don't mean he didn't do it. He just wasn't one of my, somebody I'd go fishing with. Okay. Let's first talk about the, the day that you were at the lake. He was found, Wayne Davis, in 2002. Okay. So... You were in that back east corner, and you said where you were was it was how near was it to the where the stream comes in the um, creek part? It was pretty. It was pretty close. It was just 
you, you look over my left hand or my left side and you see the stream coming in. Okay. That's why I was there. I was I was kind of going for trout. That'd be the area where they'd come in, feed, and maybe go back in the creek. So I was trout fishing. I had my daughter pan fishing, um, little girl or whatever. And uh, so I was fishing off the bottom, and that's how I got hooked into the sweater. Okay, now. It might have been like a flannel shirt or sweater. So you guys were fishing from a boat or from the side on that wood stuff? Boat. Uh, from a boat. And how far from the from the side were you? We were right there. If you look at the topical, we were right there at the drop-off point. So that area where, where it drops out from the creek into the lake is a big, a deep drop-off point? No, I don't think that lake's very deep anywhere, but it's over your head, you know. Okay. All right. So you were fishing there, and you snagged it. Tell me how far, if you recall, that the you pulled it out of the water. Oh, I pulled it back out of the water. I got got it up and grabbed the the shirt and so I cut my line and left. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that would be okay. The day's over, Leslie. All right, so where on the on the body that you found did you grab it? Just on the back of the sweater or the shirt. I, for some reason, my brain's sticking with a like a dark like a red or burgundy or something. I don't know okay. if that's what it was. You know, like I said, mind just played tricks on you. Yeah, and it's been a long time. Um, and then, so did you see the head portion? No, I did not. It was just the back and the shoulders. Okay. And and so was there anything else you noticed about it before you dropped it back down? It didn't go back down. It floated? Yeah, it, it stayed at the top of the surface there. It did not go back. That's why the people found them so quick. Okay, and so it was what you think that the that you grabbed onto was a sweater or a shirt in like a darkish color. Yeah. Okay, and, and it wasn't it, it wasn't twenty four hours later. I seen Bobby's picture on like Fox seventeen or one of them. Okay, so that would be the next day. Oh yeah, it was when I got off work the next day and came. Anyway, when I got home and. His picture of mugshot was on there, and I realized it was Twin Lake, Twinwood Lake. Big Twins, what we called it, but I knew what it was. When you when you pulled the body out, did you know who it was? No, I had an idea because the time frame, if I remember right, was when Marv was out there. But them guys had the house. If you When you turn into Basswood Lane, I think is what they call that road, or maybe Basswood Road. Mm-hmm. When you turn in there, if you're coming from Hardy Dam, you'll see uh, what might be like a double wide or a trailer or an old house to the left just before you turn in, and that was Marv's mom and dad. What about the cabin that you said he he stayed in? He rented he rented that. It's a red well, it used to be a red log cabin. Except on top of the the hill would be on the west side of the lake. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's like a little bolt house or something down there, and there's stairs going down to it. So it was on the lake? Yes. Well, it's not right on the lake, because on that side of the lake, there's a hill, so it's on top of that hill. Okay. If you uh, to get to that cabin, you got to pass the access to the lake, which there are signs that says access to whatever lake to the left. You go past that lake, 
No, there used to be a railroad tracks there that keep taking all the tracks out, so I don't know if they're still going to be there. Mm-hmm. You go around the corner, you go over the railroad tracks, you go back to the left again, and you start looking to the left, and you'll see the cabin. Okay. You said you thought that because of the time frame that it was someone that he had killed, but he had killed a couple people that they still hadn't found that they assumed. Remember, there was that John Weeks guy, um, and then there was the transient guy, Robert Allen, and then there was Wayne. You said you knew who... you. I thought you told me that you remembered who Wayne was from back when in 83 when you were there. Is that correct? Yeah, he was, if I remember right, he was a stoner and hung around town here and there. But I don't, some of the details I don't really remember. I just remember faces. So when you saw his that picture of him that they put on the news, that's how you recognized him? Yeah, but his face used to be filled out. <laughs> The, the time frame that I would have been around and really talking to people, he would have had chubbier cheeks, he would have been younger. Right, okay. Um, and then uh, with John, which uh, they never found John, so. And did you know was, him? Uh, yeah. My girlfriend was from Morley Stanwood, and she knew him really well, ex-girlfriend rather. And I dealt with his brothers at Weeks Automotive. At, did you say Weeks? Automotive? Yeah, they have a junkyard over in Morley. Oh, yes, John did have a junkyard. His dad owned it, and he ran it for a while. That's right. I did read that. Okay, so let tell, then talk to me about his relationship with Marvin. Do you remember what at that time? I'm talking about when you were knew him in, like, the 80s, early 80s. What are you talking about? Uh, which, whose relationship? John with, with Marvin's. There wasn't one then. No? No, he... He was removed from that area. He would not have known him. The only reason I did is because my girlfriend was from there. Huh, I wonder how he came to meet him then. And, and, he moved you know, over he... to Stanwood, or Morley. Uh, Marvin did? Yeah, he lived in Morley. Oh, It was okay. after I was gone. All right. He moved around a lot. We're having, I've spent two weeks tracking down dates and where he was, and he was all over the place. You know, it was. it's really hard to keep track of where he's was. Why did he move around so much, do you know? Oh, uh, he was kind of nasty and get evicted. He wouldn't pay bills and so on and so forth. <laughs> that, that that makes sense, just from what I'm reading. I mean, it's crazy how much he moved around. All right, so now when you knew Wayne back in the 80s, was he in that in that same group with all the other guys that we've been discussing? Yeah, they were always around each other. Let's talk about that lake for a minute in the winter. So, you, you did you go ice fishing that one time on that lake or a different lake? No, I did on that lake. If you, uh, when the creek is, that doesn't really freeze because it's flowing water. Okay. So, how big of an area would have been? Oh, okay. Let, we know he ended up in that water, and it was February when he went missing. So, that unless he kept him in a freezer somewhere and then dumped him later. I'm trying to figure out how he would have gotten him into the water. So that's why I was asking about ice fishing. You know, just put waders on. Uh-huh. And Mark, that guy, would have been not too hard to carry Davis over there in there. Um, in all the heart of marsh, they would have been frozen in wintertime, so it would have been easy to walk on. And that would have been the only open water. The only open water would have been the creek then. Yeah. You know, the creek and the lake, it's open in that area there. 
How far would he be able to get a vehicle into there before he'd have to start carrying them? Well, he would have carried them from the other uh, the other side there, from the cabin side. That's a long way, isn't it? Oh, that's right, from the cabin where he lived. So down the hill. Yeah. It wouldn't have been that far. And even if he didn't live there at that time, I mean, if my time frame's off, he still would have known about it because he had lived there. Right, right. He was definitely aware of the area. In another excerpt from The Color of Night, about Gabrian's criminal history, the Timmermans wrote, During his 20s and 30s, his record was littered with DUIs and outstanding warrants in several states for failure to appear. These escalated to assault, obstructing police, burglary, larceny, assault with a dangerous weapon, and felony sexual assaults. Since he randomly used eight different aliases, the cases were like shuffling cards. The wonder was how little jail time he had actually done, but anyone in the judicial system would understand. For example, he might have a trial for assault and a key witness or even the plaintiff doesn't appear. Case dismissed. Someone could have a list of DUIs 20 pages long, but they all end in suspended or revoked licenses and a couple months in jail. In the book, they described his arrest. Gabrian was a survivalist. However low his moral character capacities had sunk, creeping in that void was a primitive, nearly feral instinct for self-protection. He had been on the run for four months, always moving, setting defenses, and planning his next move. He sensed it. Maybe it was the click of a walkie-talkie by the agents in black. He sensed a threat, and he bolted. He's on to us. They raced out the door. Outside the post office, Gabrian ran up a small hill, maybe six feet away, and then turned around and ran toward his car. A wall of agents met him up the alley alongside the post office where they took him down. Five or six officers struggled with him. Marvin was not particularly strong, but he fought with demented panic. Finally, one of the officers drew his forty-five and shoved it against Gabrian's temple. They shouted the command, Stop resisting. They cuffed and subdued him. Two blocks down the street was Gabrian's dirty blue sedan with the friendly black dog waiting in the passenger seat. The book also notes that while this takedown was happening, two Amish girls had walked down the street and the FBI agents that spotted them suddenly realized that Gabrian was sporting an Amish-style beard. They wondered if he had taken refuge within that community or just grown the beard as a means of blending in. Gabrian stood trial for social security fraud the following year. This trial occurred in Lansing, Michigan. During that trial, the details about how he had used Robert Allen's ID came out. He used it to rent a room in Grand Rapids the summer Allen went missing, but he got evicted three months into his stay for failing to pay rent. A couple months after that, he opened a bank account in Michigan using Robert Allen's name with an Indiana driver's license. That account was active for a few years, right up until the time Rachel Timmerman was killed. In the end, the court found that he had defrauded the government out of $13,945.94. He'd also sold property in Robert Allen's name, property he didn't even own, and bought what he called his Christian bookstore in Allen's name. That was the home in Altona where he met John Weeks. I spoke by telephone with the wife of a man whose identity Gabriel had stolen to obtain the Virginia driver's license that he had on his person when he was finally arrested. She described to me how her husband had crossed paths with Marvin Gabrion. There was an ad in the local newspaper for a carpenter's position, 
Her husband called the number to inquire, and the man who answered told him that his office was being remodeled and asked if he could meet him at a local truck stop for an interview. Her husband said that was fine, and so he went to the truck stop where Gabriel proceeded to interview him and then hire him for a position, after which he said all he needed was his information for tax purposes. Gabriel even had a tax form with him, which he had the man fill out. Gabriel informed him of the starting rate of pay, and he completed the paperwork, and then the men parted ways. Two days later, the man got a call from his new employer informing him that he had broken his leg and they wouldn't be able to start right away. He said he would call back and update him. They waited for a call, but it never came. A year and a half later, they came home to a note on their door from the FBI. Eventually, he learned that his identity had been stolen and he ended up going to court twice, once in Grand Rapids and another time in Lansing, to testify about what had occurred. Apparently, there were multiple cases of Gabriel assuming the identities of others and they were stacking the counts of social security fraud against Gabriel while they waited for police to continue their investigation into Rachel's murder. They wanted enough to hold him until that investigation was finished. Nobody wanted Marvin Gabriel out of jail. And fortunately, Gabriel's record gave them plenty to work with. But the boldness of his cunning, in the end, belied his general lack of common sense. If you rape someone and are about to go on trial for it, you have a better chance if you skip town and lay low and don't continue to steal more people's identities and certainly don't continue to cash their social security checks after you've killed the person you raped as well as her baby and two witnesses in order to keep from going on trial. Those are dots that even Encyclopedia Brown would eventually be able to connect. Gabriel might as well have been leaving breadcrumbs in his wake the size and shape of the concrete blocks he chained to Rachel Timmerman. It's been said that he has a high IQ, but Gabriel's clearly got very little common sense. If he wanted to skip out on the rape charge and continue to live his life outside prison walls, there were far smarter ways to go about that. But Marvin liked control. He liked manipulation and he liked causing people pain. He got something out of all those things because you don't keep doing them unless you enjoy it. He continued expressing that need for control as well as showing his penchant for manipulation while in prison by sending a fevered flurry of letters to Rachel Timmerman's father, among other people. I mention these letters specifically because not only would he never admit to killing Rachel's baby to give the family some measure of relief, he allowed them to believe, in the absence of any facts to support it, that she'd been sold on the black market. He said he was trying to start a non-profit organization and wanted to use Shannon as the poster child. He did this in an effort to get the family to send him a picture of Shannon, which they did because they were desperate for any information about where that sweet little baby was. I won't even tell you what that monster did with that picture once he got it. Gabriel took the stand on March 1st of 2002 and proceeded to read from a series of police reports that he believed, in his current headspace, which seemed purposely disconnected from reality, to confirm only to him that he was innocent. His story was that he was framed by two people who took all the evidence, matching items later found from his Altona house, and helped Rachel Timmerman commit suicide. Yes, suicide, with chains and cement blocks and handcuffs and locks. He further alleged that Rachel had sent him a six-page suicide note. The prosecutor, who had already been up and down objecting a whole hell of a lot that day in court, 
rose to his feet and demanded to see this note. He wanted the judge to either require this note that had not been included in discovery to be presented to the court or the court to require him to shut the hell up about the fictitious note. The judge calmly insisted that Gabriel should finish his narrative, which, by the way, was all read from a prepared statement. None of it involved questioning by his attorneys. It must have taken the collective patience of all involved to allow him to get through it, and the judge made perfectly clear that the prosecution would have ample time to question him on every absurd thing he said once he took the stand. When Gabriel was done, Don Davis stood up and approached the stand. Mr. Gabrion, I would like to take you to the night of August 6th, 1996. The night that you raped Rachel Timmerman. The night of the fake rape, yes, sir. Fake rape? Yep. What do you mean by fake rape? It was make-believe. It was fake, so it's fake rape. You mean you weren't there? There was no rape, so it had to be fake. You're saying it was some kind of romantic encounter that you had with Rachel Timmerman? It could be more accurately considered a date rape than a rape, but it definitely was nothing romantic involved about it. It wasn't romantic? No. Please explain. Have you read the five-page... Please explain. It's not rape, it's not romantic, what is it? It's not what, it's not rape, it's not romantic, then what is it? Yes, that's the question, Mr. Gabriel. It was a 19-year-old prostitute trying to sleep with a 14-year-old boy, and I got caught in the way. That's what it was. Oh, you were dating her, were you? Incorrect. You wrote a letter to Mr. Timmerman, and you referred to that night as the night we dated. Rachel tried to sell me LSD and marijuana the night we dated. That's from your letter. Were you lying to Mr. Timmerman? It's probably not my writing. Oh, it's not your writing. Right. Roberta Gilligan came over to the sheriff's department and tried to charge me for writing letters to the governor and threatening to kill him. The governor helped me start an organization to save babies. That night that you raped Rachel Timmerman, do you recall telling her that if she told police that you would kill her, but not before you killed Shannon and made her watch? Do you remember telling her that to keep her from going to police? Of course not. It never happened either. Do you recall biting her on the nose? No, but she was pushing the car out of the um, sand and, uh... She fell down and hit her nose on the bumper. That might have caused the bleeding on her nose, or or she sat on top of my dog. It could be either one. My dog was midnight black. She sat on your dog. Right, when she... That was the night that you were playing cards with a bunch of individuals, weren't you? Till about midnight. And you went out for a ride? Right, in the convertible. With all of them? Right. And you told all the other passengers to get out of the car? Incorrect. Didn't you? No, she did. She told everyone to get out. Then she said, take me down by the river and I'll suck your dick. Now, Mr. Gabriel, what is it that made you so immediately irresistible to Rachel Timmerman that night? She said she thought I was extremely powerful looking for a man, or for a white man or something like that is what she said. She was extremely drunk. And when you returned to your campsite on the Little Muskegon River, you had bruises on your face, you had scratches on your neck, and you were missing hair. Rachel struggled, didn't she? Rachel scratched you, didn't she? Rachel tried to live, didn't she? Wrong. She didn't try to live? She passively sat there while you bound her mouth and her eyes and her body and threw her in the lake? She didn't scratch? I didn't bind her at all. She scratched you, didn't she? No. Mr. Gabriel, the witness, testified that on the morning of June 6, 1997, he was awoken about 4 a.m. Heard you drag a boat across the gravel, take the boat into the garage, and grind something off it at the bow. Before you did that, you took three blocks and a chain out of the boat, 
and you later put them back and took off in your pickup truck. My simple question to you, sir, is we know where two of the blocks are. They're government exhibits 17 and 14. Where's the third block? What did you do with it? There was no three blocks in my boat, period. No blocks? No blocks. Rachel Timmerman was on the shores of Oxford Lake on that day, alive and unbound. My question to you, sir, is did you suffocate her on the shore, or did you take her into the lake and drown her? I never killed Rachel Timmerman, period. I didn't have anything to do with it. I was nowhere near around where she was when she expired, either. I know Fast Eddie and John Weeks were there, and that Eddie had planned on killing her. I know exactly where Eddie's cabin is, if you care to know where that is, so you can go check it out. After you used the boat to take Rachel out onto that lake, after you bound her mouth because she was talking too much, after you bound her eyes, and after you threw her into the lake alive and watched the bubbles rising, you took that boat someplace where you didn't think it could be found, didn't you? You're trying to say that I took that boat to my Christian bookstore with a neighbor watching me, and now you're trying to say I hid the boat too? You took the boat on the afternoon of June 6th to the Little Miss... Is there supposed to be a yes or no answer to that? Why don't you let me finish? You took the boat on the afternoon of June 6th to the campsite of Jenny Bingham on the Little Muskegon River, didn't you? No, I did not. And you didn't want that boat at your campsite just to tad up the river? I didn't have a campsite on the Little Muskegon River. After three weeks of storing your boat on the Little Muskegon River, you thought you'd gotten away with it, didn't you? I always owned a boat. I told you I always had a fishing boat, so why should I be hiding a boat? Is there something about my questions you don't understand? After three weeks... I never hid any boat. That's the thing I don't understand about the question. I didn't even talk about hiding the boat. I asked you, after three weeks, you thought you had gotten away with it, didn't you? Nobody surfaced, did it? No, I don't... I, I never thought that I ever did any murder, so why would I think that I had gotten away with it? Wait, what? You think what you did to Rachel Timmerman is justified and not murder? No, I don't think what you did to her is justifiable at all. I think what you did is you forced her to testify in a case against a person, lying in a case which forced her to become a victim to a crime. You and these prosecutors and the police, you know what you did. She knows what you did, and you're going to pay for it at God's judgment, period. She got what she deserved, didn't she? From you. Rachel Timmerman got what she deserved, didn't she? And haven't you told that to a lot of people? Wrong. And after three weeks, you thought you had pulled it off. You thought you'd gotten away with it, and then you thought... Why let a good boat go to waste? Might as well... What boat are you talking about, sir? The boat that you used to take Rachel Timmerman into the middle of the south portion of Oxford Lake. The boat that you used to murder Rachel Timmerman. That boat. The boat that you stored away from your campsite on the Little Muskegon River. The boat that you ground the numbers off of. The boat that you put two and maybe three cement blocks and a chain in. That's the boat we're talking about, sir. Is there more than one boat in this case? You asked me, sir, what boat. I told you what boat. You thought, at the end of three weeks, you might as well sell the boat, didn't you? Where did I sell it at, then, if you're such a know-it-all? Just answer the question, yes or no, if you can. Can you repeat the question? Yes. After three weeks, sir, you thought you'd gotten away with it. You thought, why let a good boat go to waste? And you tried to sell it, didn't you? You brought it back to your store, the store, your home in Altona, and put a for-sale sign on the boat, the murder weapon, didn't you? Incorrect. You didn't put that boat for sale? Right. The neighbors weren't driving down Five Mile Road and saw a for sale sign and stopped by to talk to you about it? About some boat, but not the boat. The boat that you used to kill Rachel Timmerman was a different boat? There was no boat used to kill Rachel Timmerman to begin with. How did you get her body out in the middle of the lake? By you in that state police helicopter. (laughs) And where did I in that state police helicopter remove her body from, if you know, and you apparently do? From the north side of the private lake where you put the blocks on her.
Where do you think? Where you and Tim Timmerman put the two cinder blocks on her. How many blocks were on her before that? The two that you put on her. You're claiming that I put two blocks on her? That's correct. With Mr. Timmerman's help? That's right. Then you used a state police helicopter to put her in the water. Did I first put her in the north end of the lake? Right. Over there where you put your thick, fat finger. I put my fat finger on the north end of the lake. That's right. Right there. See where the island is? That's where you dropped her. No, that's... That... No, that's... That's where the... If you take your pointer down to the... Down towards you. Towards your waist. Down. Down. Towards your waist. Move your pointer towards your waist from where you had it. Take the pointer and move it from... You're just doing it on purpose because you don't want to know exactly where the cabin is or what actually happened. On purpose. Mr. Gabriel, when I and Tim Timmerman dropped her at some portion of the north end of the lake, how many blocks did we put on her? You put two of them. Two blocks on in the woods, and then later on, you picked her up with a helicopter and you put her right out there in the water. Were you watching from someplace? Yeah, from where God always watches people like you. You, God, were watching from someplace. That's right. Where? You know where. Tell me. You know where. Tell me. You know where. That's not an answer. Yes, it is. You're referring to yourself as God? I'm referring to myself as what I am and who I am. God? What I am and who I am. Is that with a capital G? It's not starting with a P like prosecutors, that's for sure. When you portray yourself as God, do you ever draw pictures of yourself as God? No, do you? Do you put three eyes on your God? No. Do you call yourself Aza? The defense objected and the judge sustained, but the courtroom was riveted. The three-eyed God business came from a picture that Gabriel had drawn of his alleged aborted daughter from a woman that he had impregnated at some point. He sent this letter to Rachel's dad, Tim Timmerman. Aza was the name he had given this alleged aborted daughter. The line of questioning that he'd stepped into had Marvin seething on the stand, but the prosecutor need not go any further. The interaction between them had the desired result. He could tell by the rapt attention of the jurors. Then the line of questioning went into whether Marvin had asked his mother to go over to the Christian bookstore he called home and get rid of evidence. At the time, Family members had been caught red-handed, and one of the detectives made them unload everything they had removed into the exact spots from which they'd taken them. Marvin accused his mother of planting the only book found in the so-called bookstore. The title? The Perfect Victim. According to Amazon.com, it's about a girl who'd been hitchhiking and took a ride with a couple named Cameron and Janice Hooker, and they ended up holding her captive as a sex slave for years. So for those of you counting the books in what Marvin Gabriel referred to as his Christian bookstore, that's zero Bibles and one story of depravity. That was the only book in the entire place. When asked how he learned to assume identities like he had multiple times during his life, Marvin said that he learned to do it when he was a kid and that the CIA had trained him to do it. By the end of the testimony, any credibility that he may have had when he took the seat was strained past any point of recovery. But he didn't sound crazy. He sounded like someone who wanted people to think he was crazy, or just crazy enough that any verdict might get tossed on appeal. One of the most unsettling things that the jurors learned is the extent to which Marvin Gabriel had tormented Rachel's family while in prison. The man sent letter after letter stringing them along about Shannon, feeding their hope that she might be alive somewhere, until it eventually became clear that he never had any intention to provide any clarity in that regard 
Whatever happened to that beautiful little girl, only God and the monster know. But the prosecutor tried, he really did. Like Detective Miller, Tim Timmerman, and everyone before him that had asked, even fellow inmates, they all tried to no avail. Didn't you also say that she's not in the lake because I didn't drown her? You killed her another way, didn't you? I don't know what you're talking about now. Shannon is not in the lake because you didn't drown her. How'd you kill Shannon? Shannon's not dead. And lastly, sir, you heard an earlier witness testify that you told him that you killed the baby because there was no place to put it. Was that your motive to kill Shannon? Because there was no place to put it? Is that the character of the witnesses you're going to keep repeating the testimony of? You won't answer the question, will you? Will you, sir? You won't tell this jury. You won't tell anyone that the reason that you killed Shannon is because you had no place to put her. You're a liar. That's the reason that What more can I say? You're just lying and you keep lying and lying and lying, so what can I say? Is that the reason? Yes, you're lying. Is that the reason that you killed an 11-month-old because you had no place to put her? Incorrect. Then why'd you kill her? I didn't kill her. Why did you kill her mother? I didn't kill either of them. Never. Thou shalt not kill. You killed her mother. Two wrongs don't make a right. Thou shalt not kill. Be quiet. You killed her mother. Make me. You killed her mother because she was going to testify against you, didn't you? Incorrect. And you put her body- I never killed either one of them. It's thou shalt not kill. Two wrongs don't make a right. And you put her body- Live it. Learn it. And you took her alive with tape across her mouth because she was talking too much. No, someone else did that. And you put her in Oxford Lake and watched the bubbles rise, didn't you? Wrong. And you enjoyed seeing the bubbles rise, didn't you? No. Never happened. I have nothing further, Your Honor. The trial was all but over by then, save some testimony from the defense that efforted to help the jury draw conclusions based on fingerprints being on the tape, or the lack thereof, to which the prosecutor had to simply address one question. Isn't the chance of finding fingerprints substantially lessened if the person is wearing gloves? Remember, one of the campers who had seen Gabriel commented about how he was always wearing gloves, even in front of a fire or when it was warm. The jury was sequestered for the weekend and came back with a verdict on Tuesday, March 5th, 2002. When they filed in, they were treated to the ever-defiant Marvin Gabriel sitting at the defense table with Aza, A-Z-Z-A, scrawled across his forehead. And how did it end? Guilty. The verdict was guilty. There is zero doubt that Marvin Gabriel is guilty of the murder of Rachel Timmerman and the disappearance of her baby girl. It is highly likely that the baby succumbed to the same fate, though I suspect that to this day her family still holds out hope that Gabriel sold her to some loving family and she's still out there somewhere. That the possibility of a beautiful reunion exists for them all. Maybe one day that something, anything positive, can come from this whole monstrous affair. And what about the others? Wayne Davis was found, although no person has ever been held to account for his murder. It's pretty clear what happened to him. Robert Allen, John Weeks, Baby Shannon. Did they all share the same fate? All at the hands of Marvin Gabriel? In their cases, it seems likely But the families, they don't know. They don't know for sure. The weight of a thousand questions must sit heavily on their shoulders. What happened? Where are they? Where did he put them? 
Was he scared? Did she suffer? Hope is an interesting thing. Emily Dickinson described it this way. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. I respectfully beg to disagree with Miss Dickinson. I've always believed that a little hope is a dangerous thing. Indeed, hope often asks more than we're able to withstand. Hope can be painful. Hope can remain forever an unfulfilled promise. And yet, we still hope. Because sometimes even with the pain, hope is simply all that we have. In the next few episodes, we'll discuss more about Marvin Gabrion's other victims, the missing men. Stay tuned.